Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. Even the most easily lovable characters are in some way complicit in the horrors that take place. When the past comes back to haunt you, how frightening will it be? While real-time violence and mystery can strike fear into the hearts of a reader, there's something very powerful about letting a mystery fester over many years before it all comes to a head. A plot which sees the reopening of old wounds opens up so many more narrative pathways to explore characters in greater depth and to turn surface-level fear into a greater sense of despair. How would you feel if a secret long dead and buried was suddenly unearthed, literally more than a decade later? That's the premise of the debut novel, Carla, and I'm delighted to say the book's author, Colin Walsh, is my guest today. Before we go any further, I should also point out that there are a couple of spoilers in this episode, but nothing that will alter your enjoyment of this wonderful novel. Chapter 1 like nuclear fission. Carla takes us to the seaside village of Kinloch on Ireland's west coast, where we spend time in both 2003 and 2018. 2003 is the year Carla goes missing without a trace, following the events of a summer with her friends. And 2018 is the year those friends are reluctantly reunited, only to be faced by the discovery of remains in the woods. And to make matters worse, following their return, two more girls go missing. The book is told from the perspectives of three friends from the original six-person gang. Helen, Joe and Mush are all in some way scarred by the events of the past. So we have this central character in Carla and a tourist town with an incredibly dark series of secrets. But which came first for Colin in the writing process? It's interesting because I've been, I've obviously like had to like think about these things recently about you know where the ideas come from and in what order and things like that and I was recently <laughs> I was recently reading a book that kind of made it something click with me there's a book out at the moment by this guy I think it's Christopher Clark and it's about all these revolutions that happened in Europe in 1848 and he said that at a certain point the, the attempt to tell it in a linear way like this happened and then this happened over here and then this happened over there stops working and that it's he says that the only way you can think about it is like is like nuclear fission where you're having these spontaneous detonations happening almost simultaneously all the time and triggering one another in different ways and that's kind of the way the ideas happened with the book so for example part of like the initial thing was just I had this image of a teenage girl sitting on the front porch of a house in the woods it was dusk it was summer she was smoking her old cigarette I knew she was waiting for something and I knew that there was this 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 air of mystery and looming darkness surrounding her. So that was Kala. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but that was Kala. And I knew that the sense of place, the summer, the sense of what time of year it was, this kind of foreboding dusk, all of that I knew it had to do with the town and everything. So it was like they were both kind of, they both came to me simultaneously really um but I didn't know I didn't know that was Kala I didn't know that was Kinloch it was only as I kind of went further with them that it came but I it's kind of a chicken egg thing really you know I don't know if uh it's almost like they're inseparable from one another really you know it was something that I found quite like striking when the when the novel was first submitted to publishers that a lot of people 
everyone everyone who responded to the book uh, always talked about the book's sense of place but it was quite funny because I was actually completely blind to that when I wrote the book <laughs> like it's almost like the sense of place the place wasn't uh, something I needed to write as part of the book the place was the very element through which everything of in the book came if that makes sense it does and the reason i ask is because both carla and kinlock are so beautifully drawn that it intrigued me because the sense of place is palpable i mean it's everywhere from the warren to the cafe to the different houses to the you know the woods to everything and then this this sort of anti-tourist money vibe that you get with tourist towns like that it's a necessary evil and for a couple of weeks a year there's like a million people in town yeah. and then the rest of it but you set it up really quickly and really interestingly so we have a bunch of people going back to the town for different reasons helen's going back for a wedding mush never left joe's coming back from los angeles because he's got a residency and quite frankly he needs to change the scene which he doesn't get because everyone recognizes him so they all have different reasons for being there Carla had gone missing years before and very shortly after everyone piles back to Kinlock, a body is discovered and then we're off and running. But that sense of place, I mean, the sense that someone has been in the ground known only to a few people, that that literally that terroir, I think, is absolutely fascinating. So the question was really just out of my own personal interest, because it is so well drawn. So to hear that that was almost a happy accident is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I like, of course, you know, you're always making decisions as you're writing. But a lot of the time, I think the most that like the most crucial decisions for a piece of work are not decisions that you've actually made, you know, there it's like, it, that's how it was given to you or something. So I think that the about the place, you know, I guess, on some level, probably I was influenced by, you know, things like things like Twin Peaks, for example, or even, you know, yeah, a lot of Southern Gothic kind of things where obviously the, the place saturates absolutely everything. But again, it wasn't a conscious thing per se that I was that I was doing, you know. I love Gothic. I love folk. I love anything rooted in what you could, I guess, generically call a pastoral landscape because anything to do with the land has secrets and those secrets are generally buried under it right so we're off to a a really nice start but what what you've done it's quite rare to see a combination of as i said to you in my notes the psychological tautness with a with a page turner and the way that you made me turn the pages is is very clever because what you've done this is a book essentially told from three different perspectives from helen mush and joe and they all recount what is happening at, at different times and with slightly different perspectives was that always the intention were you always going to move from one character to the next all the way through or did that come as you got into the editing no that was that was always that was there from the very beginning and it was something that i think I think it was influenced in certain ways by this famous essay that uh, Gay Talese wrote in the in the 60s about Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra has a cold um, where he kept trying to interview Sinatra and Sinatra's entourage kept telling him, no, Frank Sinatra, Mr. Sinatra has a cold. So he starts, you know, he's talking to Sinatra's bodyguard. He's talking to the fans in the hotel. He's talking to the person who takes care of Sinatra's toupee. Like he's talking to all of these different people around him, trying to get to Sinatra. And then he realizes, wait, that's the material of the piece. I can just make this collage of voices and through them and through the differences between them and the contradicting versions of Sinatra I get from them, 
I'll actually create this much more kind of multivalent version of Sinatra than I ever would if I had a direct line to him. And yeah. that was in a certain, like structurally speaking, Kala is the Sinatra of the book. You know, you have Mush, Helen and Joe, but you also have the, the local gossips. You have her grandmother, you have her teacher, you have all these different perspectives on her. And my hope was that having this kind of, you know, panoramic kind of perspective, perspectives rather on her would create these spaces where the reader would have to enter to kind of create their own relationship to Kala. Like they would be trying to discern the quote unquote real Kala, you know, the, between the nuances of the versions that you're getting from Helen or from Moshe or from Joe, et cetera. Well, let, let's come back to the et cetera. Let's hang with Kala because I love what you've just said. So, so in a way, we don't need to meet Kala for her to be fully rounded because everybody talks about her. And I said to you that she is the emotional center of this story and that's because you get the impression when you do meet her in flashback she is the group's leader whether that be a physical leader a metaphorical leader an emotional leader it doesn't matter but she is the center of this group and when she's taken away there is a real sense that that group cannot exist in the same way it's never going to be the same without her she's so incredibly well drawn that I don't miss the fact that I can't talk to her. And in a way, what happened to her has captured her. That The snapshot that we get of her as a young girl, a young woman, will be forever, you know, maintained in the memory they all have of her. But they all, they all in different ways, essentially fall apart without her, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. And that was really something that was quite important to me, was that she whether it's as this kind of charismatic presence or an kind of enigmatic absence that she's constantly there in the book, she's saturating everything. So even, you know, when she's not there, she's always there. She's like the kind of conditioning principle underneath absolutely everything. And it was important to me that, that she really was that, uh, that she was this kind of fully fleshed dimensional character because a lot of the time, you know, there's this very reductive trope of the, the glamorous dead girl who's just used as a plot device to kind of, you know, trigger off, you know, some sort of story that completely sidelines her humanity and her kind of multidimensionality as a person. Whereas what this book actually is, is, is kind of, she is the centerpiece of absolutely everything, you know, without her, there is no group of friends. There is no kind of story. There is no, none of the kind of growth or change that happens within any of the characters. Like no, there's nothing without her. You're absolutely right. There is no book, no story without her, because when she goes on this journey of discovering what her life mm -hmm. is all about and, and how she came to be and who her who her mother was and and mm -hmm. how all of that unfolds, what she unwittingly does is she shines a light on one of the town's secrets, right? Which is yeah ultimately why she ends up in the ground and, and not, you know, back at the family wedding like everybody, like everybody else. The notion of generational trauma keeps coming up on this show because people keep writing about it. Her mother will have carried the weight of knowledge about how she ended up becoming pregnant mm. with Carla through her entire pregnancy. And it is entirely possible that she has transmitted some of those emotions and feelings to Carla in utero, which means that Carla as a young woman has this sense of something tragic or something 
horrible in her past that essentially compels her to go and find out about it. And in a town like Kinloch, with as many secrets as it has, asking questions is a very dangerous way to behave, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 100%. And I think that that is actually, you know, it, it really cuts to the, to the heart of something that's very essential to to the town, but also to the general dynamic that the book is portraying about the way that secrets are perpetuated by communities. Even the most easily lovable characters in the book are in some way, to some extent, complicit in the horrors that take place because that is how these things get perpetuated all the time is that, you know, for the sake of a quiet life, uh, people will keep their head down. That is what happens all the time. And it takes a certain kind of iconoclasm to rupture that logic. But inevitably, when like the people that do that later, they might be, you know, deified in some sort of way or, you know, beatified. Uh, but at the time that it happens, they're absolutely crucified for it. And that is what what Kala does. You know, Kala, she refuses to perpetuate the very things that brought her whole existence about even. She's willing to to really uh, attack these things and she she pays the ultimate price for it. Chapter two, The Rockstar. Joe Brennan, or to give him his full title, Joe fucking Brennan, is a good-looking rock star recently returned from Los Angeles. He's a household name with a huge social media following and also a deeply troubled character with a drinking problem. I've read many books over the course of this show that tell stories from multiple perspectives, but I've never seen a writer do what Colin has done. The personas delivered in the chapters featuring both Helen and Mush are very distinct, told in deeply personal and authentic ways. But the perspective of Joe is told using the second person. It's like he's disassociating from himself, as if the big ego is actually a big facade. It is immensely effective. So what was Collins thinking behind this? There are a number of reasons why the second person is a good fit for Joe. But I actually was able... They were kind of reasons that I was able to see retrospectively, because... What actually happened like was when I first put Joe into the second person, it was like everything just went click and it was like, I have him. This is him. It was just immediately like immediately vivid on the page that like this is this is Joe. But then it was kind of in retrospect that I was able to recognize all of the reasons why it worked. And one of the real reasons that I think it works, and this is kind of uh, this is a funny thing, but um. My girlfriend is a therapist and I hadn't shown her the book while I wrote it. I only showed it to her when, it, like when I got to the end, you know, and then like, you know, she read the book and, you know, she liked it, et cetera, et cetera. But then like a few weeks later, we were talking about something and she was trying to explain to me something from work. And she was talking about basically the, there are different personality structures. And she was talking about what in psychoanalysis would be called a hysterical personality structure. And she said, oh, but it's like, it's like in your book, it's like Joe. I was like, what do you mean? And she said, oh, you know, like there's no, there's no firm, coherent sense of self. You're constantly frantically searching outwards for others to, to confirm to you who you are. So it's like, am I that? Am I really that? Tell me who I am. But is that really who I am? And he's constantly frantically looking at these things. He's constantly subject to the, the fluctuating gaze of other people. 
in a way that's incredibly unstable, but is, of course, it has connections to the way that he was raised by his parents, the expectations that he bears from them in, cer in certain respects. It also has to do with the fact that he, you know, he would have been like quite a popular kid at school, would have always been quite smart, etc. But then, of course, it's ag aggravated to an incredible degree by the fact that he he is a persona. He is a famous person who is seen in terms of an image as opposed to an actual human being. And he's sort of become trapped in this uh, in this house of mirrors, you know. And I think the very fact he comes back to Kinlock for this residency tells you all you need to know about him, because in a way he never left. I love the way you unraveled this seemingly perfect Brennan family. The, the mm -hmm. you know, beautiful, beautiful child, beautiful house, all the money in the world, incredibly respectable parents. And yet when we see them behind the scenes, there are just these snippets that, that make you understand why Joe is the way that he is. And of course, being this famous pop star or rock star, he is recognized everywhere he goes. So he's always having pictures taken of him. He's always posting pictures of himself. And then he's mm -hmm. waking up in the morning, not really remembering what happened because he got so drunk and soiled himself. You know, so in a way, he's living each day again. You know, he, he, he's not progressing. He's absolutely stuck. And I wondered whether, you know, coming back, to Kinlock was either a really smart idea because he can get to the bottom of what happened or the worst idea he'd ever had. But either way, the use of the, t of the second person is genius because A, that's what he would do. And, and B, he, he almost sees himself as this object that other people think they own a slice of, right? Yeah, very much so. I mean, that's the thing is that he's someone who is, he's constantly recognized, but he's never really seen, you know? And of course, the it's quite a double thing because to be seen is to enter into some sort of actual kind of good faith relationship with other people, which is something that he finds almost impossible to do um, because he's so committed to this perfect image of himself that the only way that he can actually try to access something authentic, so to speak, is to is to lose control, is to to drink himself beyond this kind of rigid control that he's imposing upon him this curated image that he has all the time. I think the return home is probably quite double, you know, probably on some on some unconscious level, he wants to be closer to something, you know, that precedes all of the fame, something that might be rooted in in something approaching authenticity. But at the same time as well, there's, you know, it's a retreat into the familiar, to the comfortable, to, to something that he feels that he can wrap his arms around. And then, of course, the events of the book ensure that he's actually going to be engulfed by something much bigger than he anticipated in coming back to this small town, you know? And then we have Mush, who's never left, really, the small town. Um, we, we know that he has some kind of scarring. We, we, we learn that very early on. It takes us a long time to unpick what that is, but he is essentially, metaphorically, carrying the literal scars of, of this town around with him every day. He has a very different perspective because he's never left. And Helen and Joe have. They've lived lives in different countries and they've now come back. I adored him. I thought he was the most, I guess, underestimated character in the entire thing, way stronger and braver than anybody would have given him credit for. I had a huge fondness for him and i wondered you know what would it have been like for him 
with Helen and Joe coming back and around about the same time, the discovery of this body that ends up being who, you know, we think it we think it is all along. He hasn't left. So he's been living this day to day. I cannot begin to imagine what that must have been like, because for him, this town would presumably be suffocatingly small because he doesn't have any other perspective. He works in the cafe. He just wants to drink his tins of lager and and get on with his life. And I I absolutely adored him. And I'd be fascinated as to your perspective on that, because there's always one character that doesn't leave, isn't there? In a group, somebody always stays. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think in, in certain ways, you know, both even just on a purely physical level, but also on an emotional level, I think in some ways he's an anchor of the book you know um that he really kind of um he's obviously geographically he anchors people back to the town because he's never left but also i think on an emotional level you know there's like mush is all heart really you know um and i think what you say like it's it's very you know heartening for me to hear you say about you know his courage and his strength but um you know it's something that he would not have expected in himself either you know um because of the events that took place when he was younger when you meet him at the beginning of the book as a grown man, you know, you're talking about someone whose world, the horizon of his world has shrunk so dramatically. Like you really get the sense that he hasn't really even ventured beyond the confines of his mom's cafe for years. You know, he's um, he's living almost a, re- a reclusive sort of life. I, I, I guess like probably I, I was thinking about, for example, when... I know that uh, I know that the Beatles used to talk about how when Beatlemania were ha- was happening and they'd have all these crowds outside their hotel, they wouldn't leave the hotel, but then they'd have like a whole floor to themselves, but they wouldn't be all on the floor. They'd be in someone's room, but they wouldn't be in one of their rooms. They'd actually be in the toilet. They would all just be sitting in the toilet together, just hanging out. And it was like they had this safety together of like being in these tiny rooms and just kind of having their sense of space with each other. And with Mush, you know, what you're seeing is someone who is just what is beyond that cafe carries so many echoes of so many hurtful things that he cannot really meet it. He has to cocoon himself in this sort of very repetitive, very like quasi monastic kind of life of just I get up, I do the work, I have my few cans in the evening, I go to bed, I do the same thing over and over again. And, you know, that's... um. You you said earlier about about Joe being stuck, and you know Mush also is very much stuck. I think like this is the thing with with all of those characters is that they're very much trapped in the amber of their younger selves, just kind of circling these wounds consistently, and then and then they get pulled right into that vortex by the events of the novel as it goes on. And I completely understand why he does like the sanctity of the cafe because given what happened to him, you know, who could blame him for, mm-hmm. for, for wanting just to lose himself in the day-to-day ephemera of the same routine and putting one foot in front of the other as to some form of, of coping mechanism. But when you do essentially force him to come out of the cafe and try and help with what's going on, that, that's deeply traumatic what happens to him. It's very traumatic reading it because you know what his mental state is and you know that he's going to be in significant danger. And yet you're almost cheering him on because it, it, he could have, if he wanted to, he could have just run the other way and said, you know what, I'm, I don't want any more part of it. Look at me. I've literally got the scars of this. 
so when you make him confront the ending it's it's deeply impactful and I, there is I, and i can't remember the name of the of the character that says this but somebody does say you know he just wanted to help he was the best of us or he you know he's the he's the most underestimated character mm. in this and he is because in a way and this is going to sound a little weird because he doesn't go anywhere sort of physically but he does have i think the most extreme character arc journey of all of this, which I thought was really clever because he hasn't been anywhere physically, but my word, does he go places in this book in terms of his emotions? Yeah, for sure. He's definitely, you know, for all of the outer journeys that he hasn't made, he's definitely in the course of the novel, he makes a, a quite a large inward journey, you know, but the thing, the key to that, I think is, is the fact that he's the actions that he takes in the book that sort of bring him beyond himself are for other people you know yes. he's not doing it for himself where you know if you were to counterpoint that with someone like joe for example who's constantly defaulting back to this sort of self-protective stature mush is willing to actually to go out of his comfort zone also almost instinctively because it's for the sake of other people you know it's uh i think helen says something about that describing something for herself where she says it's bright it's easier it's easy to be brave for someone else, you know. Mm, um, and on some level, I think that is what that is what's happening with Mush is that it's through his love, it's through his care for for those beyond him that he actually releases certain energies within himself that he wasn't even aware existed, you know. Chapter three: sympathy for the bad ones. Throughout Carla, we meet several interesting ancillary characters who each serve as far more than plot devices. I'd like to talk about two in particular, Uncle Gurr and Teabag. Now, they could have both been cast simply as bad guys, inflicting cruelty and pain throughout the novel, and yet, incredibly, I found myself having empathy for their situation. They're obviously part of the town's secret and feel that violence is their only way to uncover aspects of the truth and also to protect it. I loved how Colin was able to make me connect with even the most violent of characters. I think we all know people and maybe not as violent as Teabag, though I have known people like that uh, in my own life. But, you know, there's always more to them than that. You know, there is, there's always this multi-dimensionality to people. And I feel that with people like Teabag, for example, um, and just to talk about Teabag specifically, so much of what he's doing in the novel, as the novel goes on, I think you can retrospectively look back at certain things that he does, particularly his attitude towards one character in particular throughout the book, where you understand where this sort of boiling resentment comes from. You know, it's really the like it's resentment as like as a, as a psychological concept. You know, he really embodies that in some way. You know, he's he has been made to feel inferior by the legitimate system that is at work within the society and he's reacting against that he's acting outside of that system he's fighting against it in certain ways by breaking the law and doing things that are beyond the pale morally etc but what's underpinning that is not some sort of active self-assertion it's more just this lashing out in resentment and frustration at the loss that has been given to him in life and when people are in that kind of position psychologically, 
they are capable of absolutely horrific cruelty because they feel like they are the one that's being kicked by the world day in and day out. Yeah. And it's the only way that they're going, it's the only modality of relationship that they know with the world, you know? Yeah. I mean, given how much he doesn't appear in the book, he, he did command a huge amount of my time and has done since. And I, and mm. I, I understand what you're saying about the lot that he's been given and, and how that's made him think people will, Colin, inevitably talk about this book from the perspective of, you know, it's a pastoral landscape, it, it's it's psychological, it's a thriller, it's got a pace turner, they will liken it to other novels, I'm sure, no doubt. They'll also talk about the excellent use of local language and phrases, which I adored. The one thing that I wanted to to take away, what I wanted to talk about is, is the way you play with memory in this, mm. because within each of the perspectives, there are constant back and forths as something that happens in the present provokes a memory of something that happened in the past. And there is a wonderful line where somebody says quite early on that, that actually a memory of the past is actually a memory in the present. It's, it's, it's something completely different. You are remembering things differently, but I adored within each chapter, the transition from Kinlock now to Kinlock the summer that Carla disappeared. It, it's almost constant. And you use the memory and the way you structure your prose to reflect the mental state of the character that as they're going through this, this particular thing. I've never seen it done as much as you have, but it is constant, this backwards and forwards. I found it so impactful because essentially, without the discovery of the body, and the identification of who it was. There would have been no need for this much back and forth. But when they discover the body and we realize that it is Carla, of course, that would have intensified everybody's memory bank. And so these characters seem to be living in this perpetually exhausting state of back and forth. And of course, they all remember things differently, don't they? Yeah, yeah, they do. But yeah, I mean, I think that that's, you know, the the epigraph of the novel uh, it's from Cat's Eye by Margaret Atwood, where she talks about you don't look back a long time like it's a line. Like you don't look back a long time, but you look down through it like water. Sometimes this comes to the surface, sometimes that. Nothing goes away. You know, the, I think that a lot of the time when we think about the way that time works, we think about it spatially. We think about that the past is over there and an earlier point in the timeline. And then we can go closer to the present and we think about it as this linear sort of thing. Whereas actually the way that time actually functions in our day-to-day -day life is as a constant depth. You know, things are constantly rising within the present from the past. The way that you're acting in the present is constantly being conditioned by your experiences of the past, whether remembered or not. You know, the, you mentioned the, you know, this idea of inherited traumas and things like that. You know, the way that trauma functions is that, you know, you actually have something from the past that is completely conditioning your entire experience of the present in a way that's totally debilitating, for example. That's like that's a, a recurring thing within the book in, in every kind of in every sphere of the book. Um, it's about this interpenetration of the past and the present. And in certain ways, you're seeing certain characters you know, trying to escape the past by by leaving or by rejecting their relationship to the place, like Helen, for example. But they can't escape it because it's always there. You know, the past is always there. It doesn't it doesn't go away. But the book is about these people kind of confronting it as something that is not necessarily to be resolved 
or kind of explained away, but something to come to terms with, if you know what I mean. I wanted to ask you how long you've been living with this story, because for people listening to this episode on the day of broadcast, this book is out tomorrow in the yeah. UK. How long have, has it been a part of your life for, Colin? Geez, a, a, quite a long time. Um, I wrote a short story that, like, back in 2017, that teabag was in that story, you know, and that story was in Kinloch, you know, but I didn't realize this at the time that like that this was sort of where the novel was kind of going to come out of. But that was back in 2017, you know, so it's a long time ago. And it was really, I guess, like, you know, there are sentences that are in the novel now that were written back in 2017. You know, um, there are paragraphs that they were written. You know, I, I, I know where I was, where I wrote them, because I remember what it felt like of being like, oh, I have something here. Like, yeah, you know, I remember mush's cousins walking into the cafe for the first time and be like who are these <laughs> you know and they just kind of they just walked in and basically brought the whole bloody book with them you know um and you know i so i remember where i was sitting when that happened but that was 2017 you know but then yeah you know it, it took a long time because i was i was working like a you know full-time job and uh just trying to kind of get by and i was also teaching myself to write because i hadn't i never studied it formally etc you know so it was really a, a long incremental process but it's I remember hearing someone once say that it actually only takes a few months to write a novel. It takes about four months to write a novel, but it takes five years to get to that four months. And I really understand what that means because I'd say the first 100 pages of Kala took me far longer than all of the rest of the book because what you're actually doing in that time is you're really working out the grammar of the book, like how you tell it, who says what, who can who has certain emotional registers, who doesn't, what actually did happen, how are you going to structure that? All of those sorts of things took a very long time, but you're you're working out the kind of the logic of the book, the architecture of the book for like that first hundred pages that really took ages and ages, like a couple of years, you know, two or three years. But then, you know, once I, I, I got a, a bursary from the Arts Council in Ireland and once I once I got that, I decided, all right, I'm going to I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to finish this book. You know, um, I've been saving for a while. So I just decided, I, you know, it's now or never. I just have to take the leap. And then I, I had like I had the first draft, you know, within three months of that. I'm glad you did put in the time and I'm glad you did stick with it. And I'm glad you did go through what you went through, because Carla, it was an absolute privilege to read it i've it was thoroughly immersed in it it's an absolute triumph I mean, no doubt it will do so well colin walsh it's been an absolute pleasure thank you oh thank you so much thanks million mark cheers i really appreciate that thank you conclusion a massive thank you then to colin walsh for today's episode and to recap what have we learned the most crucial decisions for a piece of work are often not those that you've planned. They're not decisions you've consciously made. There are moments that only become clear during the writing process and no amount of planning can prepare you for them. Carla may be the central character of this book, but who she is is ever-changing, defined by the perspectives of everyone else. Try and experiment with this technique and see how it impacts the relationship your readers create. Imagine yourself trying to interview Sinatra. And finally, I loved how Joe's perspective was written in the second person. Allow your writing style to change and adapt in order to mimic the distinct personalities that feature in your story. 
Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at Behind the Spine. I'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. You can also sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our exclusive live and in-person residency at the Grouch Show Club in London. Titled Inside Stories, these events are not recorded and not repeated and will put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now, stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 